0: You don't want what I'm offering you, Rain Wilson, from, from my son, the father says? You don't want to acknowledge him as my son or acknowledge his death as payment for your sins? Okay, then fine, don't. Don't accept my son's substitution on your behalf. But the consequences of that are that you have to pay the price yourself. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hey, beloved listeners of One Little Candle, it's me, Rebecca. I'm here to remind you just how crucial your support is in spreading the light and truth of this podcast. You know, I appreciate every moment you spend with me, and I'm grateful for your dedication to seeking God's wisdom and understanding. So if you find value in the discussions that this podcast brings to the table, if you resonate with the message of hope and truth, one little candle strive to share, then would you please consider leaving a review? Because your words have the power to guide others seeking to light their own little corner of the world and contend for the faith. So take a moment to tap into your inner candle and let its glow guide you to the review section. Because as I said, your support is invaluable and it helps One Little Candle in its mission to contend for the faith that God has entrusted to us. And your voice can inspire others to join the One Little Candle community and be a part of something greater. So thank you for being a treasured part of our journey. Remember, together we can illuminate the path for those who are searching for the wisdom and the knowledge found only in God's truth. Hello, my friends. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of One Little Candle. Let me just apologize right up front about the sound quality of today's episode. I am less than thrilled with it, uh, but post-editing, there's there's nothing I can do. Um, I, What happened was when I exported my file, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, my wave file, don't ask me how or why, but the, um, the settings at which I export my file had changed. And they were on a setting that really was not conducive to good quality sound. I hadn't been in there messing with it. I don't know what happened, but um, that is what happened. And of course, you know, I I, I I never erase the file that I'm working from, but I do export it and save it just in case it gets lost in between the time I finish and the time I come back to my computer to edit more. But on this time, I thought, yeah, I'm just going to save space on my computer. <laughs> I am going to export it and then delete the, the one right here that I'm working on and I'll just import the other one back and well I am regretting that now because there's no fix for this um it was exported at a certain at certain settings and anyway I'm so sorry about that it has been since been fixed but anyway in today's episode I will be covering chapters 8 and 9 two of the final three chapters in the book Soul Boom Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution written by Rain Wilson so Yes, this episode and one more episode after this one, and I will be done refuting the book. If you've been with me through this journey, it's been really interesting hearing what the author has to say um, and his viewpoints and his worldview, where he's coming from when it comes to the world, to God and religion. And as you have figured out along the way, (laughs) he's astute. He's bright um he's rather educated he has a lot of worldly knowledge um and by the sounds of it book knowledge he's a he's a rather intellectual man i will give him that however however rain wilson is sorely sorely lacking in wisdom and spiritual discernment and those are the biggies that we need in this life in order to make wise decisions And we're seeing that play out in this book. If this is your first time listening to One Little Candle, I am so glad to have you. I would suggest that you go back for a better foundation, go back and listen to some previous episodes about this book. But if you choose to start off here, that's fine too. Either way, I'm glad to have you. And if you're returning, thank you so much for returning. I'm really glad that you are here. So the author spent the previous chapters showing the problems of organized religion, and he's right in so many cases. The reasons why he's not grasping, but he's right. He's also wrong in many cases too, and I hope that I've done a well enough job to, to articulate that also using scripture. I probably could have used more scripture to back it up because it is there <laughs> to, to refute this so chapter 8 titled hey kids let's build a perfect religion this is where the author is going to list the fundamentals of this new religion that he he wants to build so i'm going to just touch upon some things that really jumped out at me here because honestly with the first seven chapters that we've done i think you you already know this is where this is headed that it's it's a failure right from the start, but I'm still continuing to build on as to why it's a failure and bring it to its uh, climax here uh, and conclusion. So he says this, it's no wonder then that in the Western world, we are seeing a mass exodus from organized religion, especially among the younger generations who see religion as backward and hate filled. Yes, they do. He's right. Right. They certainly do. But why? We need to ask the question, why? Is it the religion or is it perhaps wrong thinking that causes people to think about religion like that? Now, we know using Christianity here, again, as I've said time and time again, we are all sinners. We are flawed. That's why we need Jesus Christ. But sometimes... Christians or professed Christians who are not really Christians say and do things they shouldn't okay they shouldn't but really the the reason the core reason that people see Christianity as backward and hate-filled is because they do not want they hate boundaries that God has set and his accountability and so does the author by the way He does not want the ultimate accountability that comes from a holy, perfect, righteous, just God. Okay. So yes, there is a mass exodus, but, but we also know the Bible predicts that in the end times, the latter times, and we are certainly there that we know people are going to fall away more and more. I I think that the, the separation between the sheep and the goats is all really already beginning as far as I'm concerned. But um, he says here, part of the issue, it is, seems to me, is evolution. We humans see almost everything as naturally, albeit fitfully, evolving and moving forward. There might be occasional setbacks and some natural ebb and flow, but we see technology, social justice, government economies, and overall social enlightenment. Continually progressing, growing, and transforming us over the course of time. Not so much with faith movements, he continues. Humans don't perceive religion as something that has progressed, grown, and transformed over the centuries. For the most part, we view it as static, musty, unchanging, and unchangeable. Gems of ancient truth held in a kind of irrelevant historical amber. He's definitely a great writer, (laughs) you know. Uh, He puts things so eloquently, but disagree with him in these parts here because, you know, he says that we as humans are evolving, we're moving forward. Well, first of all, we are not moving forward. Um, He used the words social enlightenment. No, actually, it's not social enlightenment, but social darkening, darkness. We are regressing, not progressing forward socially. Look at what's going on around us. Look at the news headlines, all right? Look, one example is the vile anti-Semitism that is happening right now. The Jew hate, Jew hatred. So much Jew hatred that we are rooting for a bloodthirsty uh, terrorist group, Hamas, okay? People are rooting for them. They're They're denying what happened on October 7th because they hate so much. The Christian hatred going on around the world, not just here in the United States, it's increasing, but look look at what's been happening around the world to Christians being persecuted and massacred. We are not progressing socially. When, when there's intolerance for someone's whose beliefs that don't line up with yours, and then you're trying to take away their livelihoods or sue them because they won't bake you a wedding cake, or sell you flowers for your same-sex abomination of a wedding ceremony, sorry, God says it's sin. It's sin. That hasn't changed. That's not what I call um, social enlightenment or progressing. So he says, because of social enlightenment, that we're progressing, growing, and transforming And being transformed over the the course of time, we are definitely being transformed, but not for the better. Not for the better. And so, you know, as far as faith movements, again, just talking about Christianity here. I know Christianity isn't perceived as something that's progressing or growing or being transformed over the years. But the fact of the matter is these gems of ancient truth, he says, that are irrelevant. Yes, they are gems. Yes, they are ancient. Because I'll say it again, in the beginning, God knew what he was doing. And that has not changed when it comes to morals, God's statutes, his precepts, his commandments. That has not changed, nor will it ever. But irrelevant, those truths back then very much apply to today. Absolutely, they do. Just because man has chosen to ignore them doesn't mean that they still don't apply. Man's trying to find a way around them. And it's as far as transformation goes, Christianity, a uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, has transformed many, many, many people over the years. Cold-blooded killers turned saints. All Christ's followers are, in fact, saints. But, yeah, that's the most transforming thing ever, is Christianity. It transforms people from the inside. It changes hearts. It takes cold, hard hearts and gives them a fleshly heart, one that experiences God's merciful love and it it out of that flows a love for others a love for truth a love for god's truth which gets us hated you know compassion all these things we are not progressing as the world uses the term progressing in other words we're not changing our morals to fit people's desires <laughs> nope we're sticking with the ones god gave us at the beginning of time they worked then and they work now when you follow them When you stick to them, hardly irrelevant when it comes to morals. Now, you hear people from his camp saying this is the 2000s now. A man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. There's no longer two genders, they're fluid. Now we have what, 70, 100 some genders? I don't even know anymore. Marriage being between one man and one woman only. Okay, all these parameters that God set thousands of years ago. As I always say, he got it right the first time he knew what he was doing. This is an unchanging God who set these parameters, these boundaries for all of humanity through all time. Malachi 3.6, God himself said this, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I'm so thankful that we do not serve a wishy-washy God. You know, a God who changes his mind with the times. No, our God, he's stable. He's unchanging. He's not like fallen, sinful man. And that's a comfort to us. The fact that that our God so graciously and lovingly and wisely set for us boundaries that don't change, that, that never will change. It's a comfort. For those of us who truly, truly believe, do you see by what the author's writing, just how unstable man is, the instability, you know, any progressing by mankind right now is (laughs) progressing away from moving from what is good, what is right. And, you know, you would think that people, Mr. Wilson's a smart man in some ways He should know how to add two plus two, but people cannot see the parallels the correlation between our turning from what he would label as the notorious God, the God of the Bible, the one true living God, turning from him, turning from Jesus, and the chaos and the mess that we have in this world. Now, there's always been chaos and mess, of course, and seasons, some seasons that are worse than others, but right now. Come on, we are so upside down and backward in our thinking in every arena. You know, it is ancient truth. The ancient truths are the unchanging truths. And they're not irrelevant as the author (laughs) supposes them to be. And so he suggests that perhaps we can take what we like and leave the rest, as far as the fundamentals of this religion, um, in other words, we're going to pick and choose what sounds good to our itching ears, to our sinful nature. And we're going to apply that to this new, as he calls it, super cool new religion. So for those of you that watched The Office, you know Dwight Schrute, Rain Wilson's character. He's um, a combination of naive, foolish, um, stupid Okay. Uh, He comes up with some real doozies. His thinking is out there. It's out there. And as I read through this chapter, if you saw me, watched me as I was reading the book, you would have just seen me shaking my head and shaking my head from side to side. And I felt like I was listening to Dwight Schrute talking. It was as though the Dwight Schrute mentality was just coming through the pages of this book. So the author shares something from someone by the name of Eric Fromm. He says he's the godfather of early psychology, who posited that, contrary to Freud, man's main drives were for freedom and belonging. And so he wrote an opus called The Sane Society in 1955. It explores many of the themes that Mr. Wilson has been discussing here in the book, such as mental health, finding one's path. The perils of Materialistic Society, and he says he also has a brilliant summation of the need for a new religion in the modern age. So listen to this. A new religion will develop which corresponds to the development of the human race. The most important feature of such a religion will be its universalistic character corresponding to the unification of mankind which is taking place in this epoch. It would embrace the humanistic teachings, humanistic, all right, teachings common to all the great religions of the East and of the West. Its doctrines would not contradict the rational insight of mankind today, and its emphasis would be on the practice of life rather than on doctrinal beliefs. Hmm. Yeah. First of all, let me say this, rational insight of mankind today, much of mankind has lost its ability to be rational, to exist, and to think in realistic terms. Why? Probably a lot of you know what I'm going to say, because they have been given over to a depraved mindset, just as the Bible says in Romans 1. We're going to do away with doctrinal beliefs. Well, there you go too, okay? (laughs) We're just going to practice, you know, life. No doctrinal beliefs, no um, one true God, no Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the Son of God, Jesus Christ um, having died on the cross for our sins, having been resurrected, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, nothing. The the doctrine of total depravity, you know, man's sinfulness, his separation from God. No doctrinal beliefs. He then goes on to say, not the author, but this Eric Fromm, such a religion would create new rituals and artistic forms of expression conducive to the spirit of reverence towards life and the solidarity of man religion can of course not be invented it will come into existence with the appearance of a new great teacher hmm. just as they have appeared in previous centuries when the time was ripe <laughs> again we're going back to the bahai belief of progressive revelation for those of you that don't know what that is this does away in their minds, with the deity of Christ, all right, that when Jesus was here on earth, he was, in fact, the way to the Father. But then, well, you know, that became outdated. And so later on, hundreds, a thousand years or so down the road, along comes a new teacher. Because remember, Jesus is merely a teacher who was the way to the Father at that time. But then later comes Muhammad and Baha'u'llah, false teachers, false prophets, who then were recognized by the ungodly as the way to the father. Okay, this this is what the false religion of Baha'i believes. So now we're going to be looking for a, a new great teacher. Now he talks about mythology because as far as he's concerned, Adam and Eve, Abraham, they're not real people, even though we have all their, their genealogy. All these things are myths. They're not real. These these are myths. It's a mythology. So he says, it's crucial, the author says, it's it's crucial that this new religion we are assembling like those from the past be grounded in a profound sweeping mythology that is rich with parable and metaphor. Fundamentally, I believe the new faith we fabricate will require some more powerful voices and thinkers than me to articulate the need for this movement in a greater mythological sense to tell the story of where we are headed in our spiritual evolution and revolution. He says, we need a compelling narrative that reveals how humanity can and will evolve at the grassroots from a fractured warlike past toward a united peaceful future. You know what he's right. he's right though we do actually need a compelling narrative here um hmm i I don't know what that could be. um gee, I don't know, Mr. Wilson, perhaps the Gospel of Jesus Christ <laughs> already have one so he says, so let's get to work. We're going to attempt to create out of whole cloth right here on these very pages, a religion that would potentially help us to progress spiritually in a revolutionary new fashion to help humanity mature and collectively make increasingly moral, compassionate choices. We are not capable, Mr. Wilson, of making moral, compassionate choices without the God of the Bible. Here's a great example as to why we can't. Okay. How about Abortion. Many claim that uh, killing an unborn child in its mother's womb is, in fact, a compassionate moral choice, all right? We know for a fact that it's cold-blooded murder. So this is why, left in the hands of man, like the author wants to do, um, letting man collectively decide on what's good morals and bad morals, uh, <laughs> disaster, absolute disaster. God has shared with us already in his word what's morally right. The problem isn't um, in not knowing what's morally right. It's in refusing to do what's morally right, refusing to do what God says is right. So he goes on to say, um, you know, we need to make these choices, uh, increasingly moral, compassionate choices, to help youth deal with the epic mental health struggles and other pandemics that surround us, to help individuals find peace, hope, and meaning in their hectic, disconnected, modern lives, to make the world a better place. Fasten your spiritual seatbelts. First things first, we need a name. Well, I'd say we already have a name. That name is Jesus, but here's where Soul Boom comes up. As we need an enormous explosion of spirituality to move toward this new reality and putting the unfortunate boomer connotation aside, I'm going to go with soul boom, the religion. Apologies if this comes off as narcissistic or self-promotional, but it's my book and I get to do as I like. So kiss my Holy Ghost. Um, And, and, you know. I don't know who he was saying this was tongue in cheek. I don't know if it was an interview with Russell Moore or he was also on The Office Ladies. I've never listened to The Office Ladies. For those of you don't who don't know what that is, it's a podcast hosted by, they played as Pam and Angela on The Office, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey, I think is her name. And they talk about The Office, you know, some behind the scenes stuff and things that went on while they were making the office. So, you know, it's for definitely for office fans and and he was on there, so I did listen to that episode and I thought I saw that Jenna Fisher was Christian. Um, I would not consider her Christian because a true Christian who's really read this book and knows her Bible and knows God, the characteristics of God, who he is, his nature, would not in any way shape or form promote this book. I'm just just saying. You know, but he said, you know, it's it's kind of tongue in cheek creating this new religion. You know, he trademarked soul boom, the religion, by the way. There's a there's a trademark thing here. I don't know as though it's really tongue in cheek. <laughs> um but he says, so what does soul boom believe, look like, practice, stand for? Let's start by assuming that Soul Boom has all the universal markers of any of the world's great religions, those ten fundamentals we explored in the last chapter, and then he recaps them. A higher power, Soul Boom officially believes in a big guy-slash-gal-force-slash-god-slash-creator thingy. A force that has our best interests in mind, a creative cosmic source closer to the concepts of art, love, and beauty— than any kind of judgmental sky daddy. Again, he's referring to what he calls the notorious G-O-D, the God that you and I know, love, and revere. Okay. Life after death, there is no concept of hell as a specific location or a place of eternal hellfire and damnation in Soul Boom. Remember, our higher power is not childish, vindictive, or mean. So why would he banish people to infinite torment? He's not Voldemort. Rain Wilson, you're right. God is not childish, vindictive, or mean. He is a God of love. He is love himself, and he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's righteous, which means he cannot deny himself. He cannot tolerate sin in any way, shape, or form. Anyone who ends up in hell has chosen that path, Mr. Wilson. Why do I say this? Why do I say it's a choice? Well, Okay, because Mr. Wilson is like a lot of people who are in denial of the truth. They'll accept the part of God, the side of him that's love. They'll reject the rest of him. But this part, of course, they'll accept. Now, because remember, our, our definitions have to be biblical, first of all. So what is what is a loving God? Now, the world would say a loving God is one who's not going to convict us or confront us about our sin. He's going to tolerate, he's going to tolerate our sin. Okay. That is not what the Bible says about God's love. All right. Now we know that God is love. He is the embodiment of love. He doesn't possess love like we as humans might. He is in fact the very definition of love. And so because he is love, anything he does is never unloving. Okay, so if God is love, he can't at the same time be unloving because then he's contradicting himself. All right. So question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, first of all, you have to assume that sending someone to hell or that allowing, let me say, someone to go to hell is an unloving act on God's part. Okay. So what we're saying as as human beings is that it's wrong for unrepentant sinners to pay their penalty because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So we're basically <laughs> claiming to be more loving than God is at that point. You know, we would never do that. We would never make someone pay the price for their sins. We're loving God, you're not. So, yes, God is love and and he's he's a he's a perfect love. Okay. Now, How can a loving God send someone to hell? Let's look at the word send. Because God's given us free will. He's given us the freedom to make life choices. Choices that affect not just our lives here on earth, but the choices that also have eternal consequences. In other words, anyone that goes to hell is not an innocent party. They're not a passive victim. Okay? Okay. So instead of how can a loving God send someone to hell, why don't we ask this? If God is love, then why do some people go to hell? Well, you look to Romans 1 verses 18 through 20 for that answer, which says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen Being understood from what has been made so that, get this part here, people are without excuse. So God's word tells us that, first of all, people actively suppress the truth, the truth that they know deep down in their hearts. They suppress it. God has given, not just through creation, but through all kinds of ways. He's given enough truth for people to know him, to accept him, to surrender to him. But they don't want it. Well, a lot of the reasons are like our author here, Rain Wilson. He doesn't want to be told what to do. He does not want God's boundaries. He wants to decide his own. He doesn't want that accountability, the ultimate accountability. He wants his self-will to rule. He wants to deny God the right to tell him what to do. And he is not alone. As the Bible tells us, man loves the darkness instead of the light. Okay, so the truth is there in front of them, but people turn away and they refuse to see it. Atheist Thomas Nagel said this, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. And that is what many atheists think and feel. They don't want there to be a God. They don't want a universe like that. So people do not want to accept the revelations that the the very one who created them and has made himself known to them has revealed to them and so God what he does is he judges each of us according to the truth that he's given us Romans 1 tells us that he's given us enough truth to turn toward him rather than away from him but here's another part to to God okay he's a god of love he's also as we're seeing a god of Wrath, justifiable wrath. Another side to him is perfect justice. Now, what is justice? Well, we all want justice here on this earth, don't we? We want adequate payment for crimes committed. <laughs> and so, if we reject our Creator, we turn against Him, high treason, you could call it. What we get is, okay, you don't want me, you're not going to have me. And so, because you're a soul, And the soul is going to live eternally. This the author's right about this part. We we are more than just um a body, we're also a soul. If we want separation from him, God is going to give us that in all eternity. But what comes with that separation is the absence of goodness, light, relationship, joy, love, all these things that are facets of God's nature. And so to excuse our sin of rejecting God. Well, that would require him to be less than just, right? You think a perfect, righteous, spotless, sinless God is going to allow sinful humans into his perfect heaven? Because what do you think they would do to it? They would destroy it. And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel that the author of this book and so many like him reject. This is why the perfect son of god jesus christ the son of god this is why he went to the cross in our place because he his perfect blood was the only acceptable payment for the debt that each of us owes god because of our sinfulness and so if we turn down jesus's substitution guess what okay you don't want what i'm offering you rain wilson from, from my son, the father says, you don't want to acknowledge him as my son or acknowledge his death as payment for your sins? Okay, then fine, don't. Don't accept my son's substitution on your behalf. But the consequences of that are that you have to pay the price yourself. He gave Rain Wilson and anyone else who rejects him that freedom to choose how to respond to him. So, so there are consequences for this choice. Um, let's put this in practical terms. My my husband was um was was listening to some of this as I was going over it for editing, and he he asked a really good question. He he says, "Does Rain Wilson have any kids?" I said, "Yeah, he has a teenaged son." And my husband said, "Well, if his son was standing at the edge of a cliff trying to commit suicide, and Rain was there." saying please don't stop stop you know you're going to die if you do this please listen to me turn back and his son jumps off the cliff anyway is it rain wilson that pushed him off the cliff is it is it rain's fault that that's what his son chose you know is he responsible for his death that he put him over that cliff no that would have been his son's choice and see god gives us Warning after warning, opportunity after opportunity to turn back. <laughs> the irony of it all is it's so simple. Salvation is so simple. It really is. You know, listening to everything, reading everything in this book, Rain Wilson, just he's making everything so complicated. It's not that complicated. All right. You accept God's free gift, you repent. You put your faith, you place your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone. You live for him. Um, and God, God warns us of the consequences of rejecting him. He tells us what they are. He's clear about it. He tells us where we're going to spend an eternity without Jesus Christ. And that is an actual place a dark, horrific place in a lake of fire. So it's not God's fault if we end up in hell. It's ours and ours alone. C.S. Lewis said this in his one of his works called The Great Divorce. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So all that are in hell, choose it. And I'd like to thank gotquestions.org for really helping me to explain this. Anyway, moving on. The uh, author has another comment here about hell, actually. He says, does that mean hell doesn't exist? Well, not exactly. (laughs) I've been in hell before. When I was living with addiction, despair, anxiety, and a few brushes with suicidal ideation, I was miserable, lost, overly medicated, and confused. I was in a literal and figurative hell. So in Soul Boom, hell is simply distance from the source of divine joy. Distance from light, from love, from belonging. Hell is being lost in self and pain and isolation, but it's not some destination for the damned and the non-believer. Wrong again, Mr. Wilson. Okay, so the author rejects the doctrine of hell. Let's hear what the Word of God has to say about it, okay? Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Yes, that's your spiritual death. Something that followers of Christ will not see, will not experience, thanks to the grace and the mercy of a loving God. Matthew 10:28. Jesus said this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell matthew twenty five forty six and these will go away Jesus' words again, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Second Thessalonians one nine they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might matthew thirteen fifty and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark nine forty three. if your hand, and these are Jesus's words again, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't telling people to cut off <laughs> arms or legs or tongue, but he's making a point that it's better for you to do that, to enter life maimed, okay, than unscathed physically, and to go into hell, into eternal damnation. Uh, Jude one seven. in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And Matthew 25.41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil, and his angels. And there's um there's a few more too, but I think enough said, the author is tragically mistaken on this point as well. You know, there's a saying and it's very, very true. It says that this earth is the closest that unbelievers will get to heaven. But for the believer, this earth is the closest believers will come to hell and he also talks about the, again the power of prayer transcendence uh community i'm going to skip over those because i addressed them in the previous episode on chapter 7 but I'll, um i will say this about moral compass that he has here it says like it or not we at soul boom are all in favor of figuring out what's right and wrong <laughs> he says We would love to have a belief system that allowed followers to simply do what feels right. But a moral code that doesn't bend up with the ups and downs of social trends is crucial. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Here's how ours will differ though. We will establish a soul boom council of wise folks. Wise folks who are sinners and very fallible when it comes to making decisions and knowing right from wrong without God. Um, wise folks who peruse the divinely inspired universal moral codes that have been passed down for eons from both the Eastern, Karmic, and Western Abrahamic faith traditions to decide. Through long, loving, and frank consultation, the collective moral parameters for Soul Boomers. In other words, we at Soul Boom are going to become gods ourselves. So long, God, out you go. We don't need you. We got this. We're good. That. Is the height of stupidity, foolishness, and arrogance that's the height of it I, I told you it gets worse um yeah he goes on to say, your personal relationship with this new soul boom world code will ultimately be between you, your conscience, and the creative cosmic force, also known as God. That is, you won't get kicked out for failing to follow the guidelines. Yep. What have I said over and over and over again, no accountability. This is insane. God help anybody that falls for this. Um, and again, he also talks about the force of love, increased compassion, service to the poor, strong sense of purpose. Again, I covered these topics in the previous episode. He says, our purpose will be inspired by the words of Albert Einstein. The religion of the future will be a cosmic religion. It should transcend a personal God and avoid dogmas and theology. So in other words, mm -mm, can't have anything to do with the word of God. What God has said to us. Nope. No Bible in there. (sighs) Well, I take that back. There probably will be some scripture in there because as you see, the author has a huge smorgasbord spirituality. Um, So there'll be some Bible verses in there, but they will be taken out of context, uh, perverted, and misapplied. Covering both the natural and the spiritual, it should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things natural and spiritual as a meaningful Unity. There you have it. The soul boon take on religion's fundamental varieties, he says. So now he offers up an additional 10 principles, okay? He says the goal of these next 10 qualities is to show how this new faith community will embrace the ideals needed to remake and progress our modern world. No clerics. He says one of the miracles of the 12 step recovery program at AA is the lack of leadership roles. The inmates are running the asylum. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Okay, so when he says loving God, he's not referring to the actual God. Okay, the creator, the sustainer. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Uh, He says, what if modern religion was like that? Leaders as trusted servants. Well, you know, Mr. Wilson, that shows how little you know about what you're talking about, because within a sound Christian church, that is exactly how it goes. What if no member of faith had more power or authority than another member? Well, Mr. Wilson, you'd have what the world has now outside of Christianity, and that's chaos. What if like at at an AA meeting, there were regular democratic elections where A Rotating staff of elected folks help to serve the needs of the community. Mm, I just said that's pretty much how the Christian church works. The congregants vote in their pastor and the elders and the deacons. We decide. The body. We're all the body of Christ. We come together to decide who our leaders are going to be. And if um, there's a problem with them and they, they fall into sin or they're abusing their roles they are removed but he says here we want a faith where everyone's everyone's you hear this where everyone's interpretation of the holy writings is valid and worthy of consideration and consultation god mr wilson is a god of order not chaos you have written a prescription for total chaos I can tell you there's, there's one who's loving this and it's Satan. Oh yeah. He's loving this. All right. Um, diversity plus harmony. It says that this is going to be a faith open to all. All are embraced, included, and welcomed with loving open arms and a spirit of light. Hmm. That sounds really nice. Doesn't it? Everyone come one, come all. No matter who you are, you are welcome in the soul boom religion. Well, all right, let's 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 take a further look at that because it depends on what you mean by all will be embraced and included. Um, are you talking all manners of sinfulness will be embraced and included too? It, um, anything goes. It doesn't matter what people's beliefs are. They're all considered valid. Um, Polygamists, um, pedophiles. Even within your, hey, who's to judge, right? You know, as uh, who was it that said that? Gandhi, you know, tries not to look at the faults of others. (laughs) Look, Christianity, Christian church welcomes all as well. Um, The church welcomes sinners of which we all are. But we have repentant sinners and we have unrepentant sinners, two different groups. And so unrepentant sinners are, in fact, welcome into the church come on in if you'd like to talk to someone we'd love to talk to you Uh, we welcome you with open arms pray with us come hear hear the sermons We welcome everyone in in other words but the difference is we welcome but we don't affirm the things that the bible clearly calls sin we cannot embrace or affirm and so unless a person is willing to turn from what god says is sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ, they cannot be an active member of the church community. They can't be a teacher. They can't be a deacon or an elder or, or any of those things within the church or become a church member for that matter. God has boundaries. And um, those boundaries also, you know, they, they go for the church, for the body of Christ. So that's, that's the difference. I think um, soul boom religion would affirm sin, because it doesn't recognize God for who he says he is. And so I think anything goes pretty much at that point. He goes on to say, soul bloom is our field and the diversity of our community is what will strengthen and reverse the damage our current divisions are causing. But, you know, as I've said, there's a good reason, a necessary reason for the division because you're you're talking about good versus evil here. You're talking about um right versus wrong. Okay? You're talking about truth versus untruth. It's a battle here, something I don't know if Mr. Wilson understands. Here's the reason why there's division. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, that is the truth of God, as in God's word, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, that is Satan, and take the helmet of salvation offered only through Jesus Christ and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is why there's division. It is a battle of good versus evil. Those who are on the side of God, the one true living God, are on the side of good. Everyone else is on the side of evil, whether they realize it or not, no matter how good they think they are. Because if you're not of God, as Jesus said, if you're not following him, him as the son of God, you are of the devil and he is evil. So there's division because there's truth versus lies. There is good versus evil. So bottom line is you will never ever get rid of That division, so long as there's the battle between uh, truth and untruth, that necessary division is always going to be there. And those verses that I just shared with you are from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. The author writes, Our inherent and shared humanity, our divine souls, our inherent goodness. These are the things we should see first when we look at our fellow soul boomers nope we do not have an inherent goodness do we no there is none here's what our creator tells us about that let's see we have uh romans 3 10 through 18 paul um exposes mankind's character He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's what you're finding in this book, no fear of God. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 17, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus here is plainly stating that since God, okay, he's the only one who's good, no one among all humanity can truly claim to possess goodness. And mind you, these are people that thought that Jesus was just a teacher. Jesus was good. He was the son of God. He was God in, in the flesh, okay, part of the Trinity. But he's pointing out to this, this person that calls him good teacher. There's no one here on this earth that's good, okay? No one among humanity that can truly claim that, that they're good. Because it doesn't come anywhere near the level of God's goodness. <laughs> so that's why Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you in John 3, 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are in fact, when we have that true saving faith, we are born again from corruptible seed into incorruptible. Psalm fourteen two and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are anyone who understand, who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Romans 5, 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Ephesians 2, 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is where Paul was telling them in Ephesians that this is how they once used to be before knowing Christ. Ephesians 2.1 tells us we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Nope, there is no inherent goodness in your fellow soul boomers now here okay because he's made it clear he hates patriarchy he says this soul boom religion needs to have a centrality of the divine feminine (laughs) he then writes to quote one of the world's great philosophers ariana grande when all is said and done you'll believe god is a woman the journey of many of the world's oldest spiritual practices has been to move from a reverence for the matriarchal feminine to a rejection of the Mother Earth womb mythology. Indeed, modern religion embraces the stricter, more controlling, patriarchal father. So, did you notice the word there, controlling? Here we go again, right? Um, <laughs> we have to do away with accountability. The accountability that God the Father holds us to, and he wants nothing, nothing to do with it. That's why he uh, has such a disdain for biblical patriarchy. It says here that around 1500 BC, the tide turned away from worship of the female deity and became patriarchal. Ah, but he says, yeah, Father God took the place of the divine feminine, often in ways that have obliterated the previous mythologies. We as Soul Bloom want to course correct this backward ass way of thinking. We need to re-honor the woman divine feminine in our construction of the faith of the future. We are not naive, he says. We know this will take an incredible amount of work. The patriarchal narrative of our culture is so deeply ingrained in our psyches that it will likely take decades to undo. He says, what if women had been our storytellers? Uh, what story would Eve have told of Picking the Apple? Well, she would have told the same story that God did unless she chose to lie about what happened. (laughs) But, you know, this you can hear a lot of um, feminism coming from the author here because, you know, these radical feminists hate the idea of any form of male leadership, whether it be within the church or the home. They don't like it. You know, witches and, and pagan and cultic groups... They use feminine, they use feminine language to refer to God. And really all it is, is it's to slap God in the face. It's an insult, is what it is. All right. And they they misapply scripture to try to say, you know, metaphors this scripture uses in referring to wisdom. Wisdom is referred to as she or the nation of Israel, she, you know, and they misconstrue this as God Referring to himself in in feminine form, but here's a couple things, all right? God came to us in the flesh, am I right? He came to us in the flesh. We know Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And how did he present himself in the flesh? As a man, a male. What about when Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Remember, he said, our mother who art in heaven, right? No, he said, our father who art in heaven. Jesus referred to God as God, the father. All right, look, the Bible is a divinely inspired book. Okay, God, God wrote the book. It's God breathed. This is why man, in spite of all his efforts throughout history, has tried very hard to destroy the book. But the more they do, the more the book spreads, okay? You'll never get rid of God's word, the Bible. And so because the Bible is God-breathed, it is God himself describing himself in those male terms. I'm sorry, Radical feminists and the author included don't like male leadership, but God made man. He made Adam first. He created Eve out of Adam to be by his side, to be his helper. And unfortunately, people have misconstrued male leadership um, and sinful man, of course, men themselves have screwed up their positions of, of authority and and leadership because of their sinfulness. But there's many who do it well though. And homes and families are thriving because of godly male leadership. There's churches that are thriving because of godly male leadership. Churches, by the way, that have female pastors invite female leadership over men, they're, they're heretical, and they they embrace a multitude of other sins, including same-sex marriage. So, I don't know what to say. This is how God describes himself. I'm sorry the author doesn't like it. Goddess worship is from the occult. It's from witchcraft. Yes, it's been around for eons. Um, it wasn't the first thing. The first God to be recognized, the first worship, was from the first people. That was Adam and Eve. They had a relationship. They communicated daily with God the Father. They worshipped God the Father. Okay? Um, And Jesus, because Jesus was there as well. Um, All things were created in him, by him, for him, as God tells us in his word. So the first deity to be recognized or worshipped was in fact not feminine. It wasn't until sin came in the world and then uh, man decided to not follow God and and follow Satan. And this is where the feminine, uh, the goddess worship came to be. The author shares a quote from someone named Chief Crowfoot. This was quoted in 1890. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And then... Rain says, we have so much to learn from that poetic gem. We humans have drastically lost touch with our living, sacred connection to nature in this modern world. Our lack of direct access to an interaction with our pulsing living earth is, I believe, directly responsible for how disconnected we have become and from the real threat of man-made climate change. Well, first of all, um, this climate change, the author is definitely a member of the cult of climate change. He is, I think, about the paganistic worship of Mother Earth, which is what we're seeing more and more. And this this Mother Earth kind of worship is definitely an aspect of the, the cultic climate change uh, narrative. God has control of the earth. We know our earth is going to be just fine until Jesus himself um, decides to shake things up. But, you know, First of all, we, we were told to rule and subdue it, right? To have authority over the animals, the plants, the trees, the earth. God, God gave us the earth, his, this beautiful blue planet, to steward. And it is through nature that God reveals himself. Another reason why man is without excuse as to the existence of the one true living God, the God of the Bible. I feel I have to keep, you know, um, because he uses the word God, but he doesn't mean God the way you and I mean God. So I have to keep, I feel, uh, emphasizing that here. But, um, you know, as Christians, we do have a love and a respect and an admiration for this earth. We do notice all those little things. Why? Because we see the face of our creator in it. We see the hand of our creator in the smallest things. I've, I've written about it. I've done an episode about it. You know, we do see those things because they, they show the glory of our creator of the god of the bible uh, another fundamental of this religion would be the centrality of justice he says today the phrase social justice has become oddly enough controversial yes absolutely as it should be because social justice falls far short of biblical justice true justice actually it perverts it it's not justice as through god it's it's man's perverted distorted conception of what justice is. So yes, um, that, that is why it's, it's controversial. He quotes the Bible here. He says, yet in Isaiah 117, it says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Absolutely. But the problem with our social justice now is it's calling people oppressed that aren't really oppressed. And it's, it's, it's accusing people who are not oppressors as being oppressors. That's the problem. It's hyper focused on race and dividing people up according to race. you know and and he's he's a fine one to to talk justice because he he denies God's justice, and that's that's the only true form of justice is god's justice and and he is repulsed by it actually. Let me just share a little bit of this with you. It's an opinion section from liberty dot and it says, social justice is not the same as biblical justice. It says, scripture leaves no room for interpretation that God is a just ruler and desires equality for all humanity. Psalm eleven seven states, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. And then it goes on to say, because of our sinful nature, our definition and conception of justice is skewed. Furthermore, American culture propagates a version of societal fairness called social justice adding to the confusion of justice we experience. On the surface, it appears that social justice lines up with biblical justice because the goal of social justice is to ensure that oppressed groups are freed from oppression and that their needs are met. But if you examine closer, they're starkly different. So, yes, the big difference between societal justice and biblical justice, because, yes, the Bible does call for justice, there's there's no doubt about that, but social justice it, it takes a route. The route that they take contrasts big time the meaning of biblical justice. The core value of social justice is to redistribute resources and advantages to the disadvantaged, to hopefully achieve some social and economic equality for all. But in order for that to happen, you have to be able to identify those who have advantages and resources with those who don't and so what it does it pits people it pits groups against each other it instills hostility and jealousy in those who are labeled or deemed oppressed you know and those who are deemed as oppressors and what it does too is create this ridiculous uh, victim mentality or causes people who really aren't oppressed to think they are you know, that's the problem when you live in a nation that we are so spoiled and coddled in every sense of the word. We, we feel that we're owed, entitled to this easy living, and we are not. We are not. It, it's a privilege from God. So you have these people that have this victim mentality, and people who they are told are oppressing them, and so they blame others, oftentimes unjustly, for their, their plight, But see, what biblical justice does, it unites people, it uplifts people, okay? But social justice, it tears down uh, groups that it has targeted as, you know, oppressors, but it it creates division. And of course, it gives more power to the government. And when you have a wicked, corrupt government, which we have, well, mm, need I say more? And we see the division and the upheaval that groups like Black Lives Matter have caused and this uh, critical race theory garbage. The, the bottom line is we need to know what's right first before we can decide on justice. And with the moral decay, and, and you can see even the stuff coming out of the author through his writing, he doesn't even know what's right. Um, the only one who knows and can tell us what's right is God. Which God? The God of the Bible, <laughs> the one true living God. Here's the thing. If if we're refusing to acknowledge the one true living God, okay, if we reject what he says, like the author here, and so many others do, then we truly won't know what is right. And if we don't know what is right, we're incapable of initiating true, fair, and impartial justice. He says here further down in the chapter, well, I believe the soul boom needs to be filled chock a block with spiritual teachings in that same vein, bite-sized pearls of wisdom and guidance from all the ancient prophets, thinkers and philosophers that are practicable, that are practical, applicable and to make everyone's life better in tangible ways. And you know, that's the problem even with many professed Christians is they love to live off of quotes, little bites, um, sound bites, milk, but God's word tells us we need meat. We need stuff that really is harder to digest, that really needs to be chewed on or mulled over, prayed over, meditated upon in order to grow and to be able to, to live the way that God wants us to live. And he has a quote from Gandhi here. Gandhi backs up this whole enterprise. What's the enterprise? The enterprise is, is being others-focused. He says, Gandhi backs up this whole enterprise with his characteristic humility. I, I look only to the good qualities of men, not being faultless myself. I won't presume to probe into the faults of others. Well, yeah, there's that's some okay advice with... <laughs> With limitations, um, we are not to be hyper focused on others' faults. We are to always recognize our own faults, and and the Bible tells us this when confronting others. But see, here's here's where there's a difference here because we have accountability to one another in Christianity for a, for a very good reason. And a good verse for this is in Matthew seven. Now, it starts out, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Um, Now, if you take this out of context, it's going to make it sound as though we should never call out sin. But again, we have to take it in its context. So you keep on reading. Beginning with verse 3, Jesus asks, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will See clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. In other words, we have to have ourselves examined first. We have to be perfect. No, no one is. No one ever will be while alive here on this earth in our mortal bodies. And we especially shouldn't be calling others out in a particular sin if we ourselves are caught up in that same sin. And, you know, we we don't do it with an eagerness. We do it with a spirit of humility, realizing that we too could possibly be caught up at some point in the same temptation or, or sin that they are if we're not careful. We have to have a heart that just wants the best for others. And we need to be examining our own selves at the same time. We need to be willing to live by the same accountability or standard that we're, you know, we're confronting them on. Matthew 8:15 says, if your brother or sister sins go and point out their fault just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Um, Proverbs 27, 5, and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Luke seventeen three, pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Galatians six one, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. First Thessalonians five fourteen, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, be patient with everyone. So, you know, what does what does Gandhi mean by this? Um Don't call out harmful behavior in another person or or sin. So yeah, that was chapter eight. And um, in chapter nine, which is titled The Broken Blue Marble, I'll just touch on a couple things here because I think I'd like to save chapter 10 to kind of be the concluding chapter and concluding remarks in the following episode. Um, But he's talking about life here on planet Earth, everything from War to, to climate change, um, just people's, people's behavior, the di- disunity. You know, he, he's touched on that. UFOs, uh, he commented on that too. He's, so he talked about a picture that was snapped of planet Earth, taken by one of the astronauts of Apollo 17. This picture was snapped in December 1972 during NASA's last man lunar landing. And he said, the photograph showed us our true home, always revealed we are floating in outer space on a beautiful, round, cloudy, vibrant miracle, alone in the black vastness. Not alone, because um, the sovereign hand of God is what's keeping this planet functioning and on its axis and, and everything. But he says here people were kind of awed by that, and rightly so. And then how, you know, somewhere over the course of the next 20 years, people went back to their, as Heek says, jaded haze of cynicism and a core belief that humans will always be at war in some way, shape, or form. (laughs) Get used to it, buddy. Um, He says, we've come to collectively believe that world peace was a pipe dream, only idealized by the naive, the foolish, and the childish Humans will be humans after all, and our warlike nature will never change. At least that's what the pragmatists, Marxists, and postmodern moral relativists continue to trumpet. Actually, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Marxist or any of these things, but you know what? I trumpet the same thing. There will be no world peace until Jesus Christ comes in bodily form and brings it about. Why do I say this? Because that's what my Bible tells me, and why wouldn't I believe it? Because my Bible has been right. All along, as a matter of fact, according to my Bible, things are going to get much, much worse for those who dwell on earth, especially during the tribulation, which the church will not be here for. um this always going to be like this, not because I want it to be like that. I want world peace too. We all do, but as God, our Creator, tells us, so long a sinful man is here on this broken blue marble, it will never happen. The unrighteous, the sinners, unrepentant sinners, are going to have to be removed first. Okay? So there will be no peace because of the human condition, the human hearts. But unless the author of this book stops blaspheming Jesus Christ, he's never going to be able to experience that world peace. Unfortunately, he talks a little bit about UFOs in here. (sighs) I thought this was interesting, so I'll share it. Recently, the American government released previously classified intelligence about the staggering amount of unidentified aerial phenomena UAPs, which is a new term, I guess, for UFOs. Anyway, he talks a little bit about it. He says it is eminently clear that all those wackos who were talking about space aliens back in the day weren't the tinfoil hat nut jobs we all thought they were. They were right. In regards to the rapture of the church, you know, there's been a lot of of talk over the years as to what the world is going to be told when Christians disappear from the face of the earth. And now you have, in this day and age, the legitimizing, so to speak, of extraterrestrial life. In other words, more and more people are beginning to believe that it's true, that there is life somewhere out there other than the life that God created here on this earth. And it seems to be happening along with the last of these end time events. And so perhaps what many claim, I don't know, is true. Maybe they, the world will be told that we were abducted by aliens. I just found it interesting, I guess, that he was affirming extraterrestrial life. He's trying to do his own little... um conversation with an alien uh, a conversation between aliens and um one of them says what's racism and the other alien observer says humans have different colored pigments in their skin and have self-sorted into quote unquote races socially constructed groups whose creation and abuse has ultimately caused no end of oppression injustice and disunity yeah what was it that i just got done saying several minutes ago about critical race theory Mm Mm-hmm. He says here, every day we're bludgeoned by news of how bad everything is. Yet we've made more progress over the last 100 years than in the first 100,000, says Greg Easterbook. Well, we have progressed technologically, if that's what he means. But as human beings, nope. We are going backwards when it comes to civility when it comes to morality and as far as science or knowledge goes we're trying to deny that slap science right in the face the fact that when you are born a male or or as a female it's permanent it's permanently fixed there is no changing it yeah this this gender fluidity nonsense (laughs) slapping science right in the face we are going backwards there we're going backwards Even Bill Gates, he says, is on it. He says in a book blurb for Ridley, there have been constant predictions of a bleak future throughout human history, but they haven't come true. Yup. And you know what they've been predicted about? Well, first it was called global warming, but then when that was disproven, well, it's climate change now. Look, I'm 59 years old. I was in school and all the movies we saw that by the year... 1980, we'd all have to wear gas masks or whatever. Anything that's ever predicted in the area of climate change and things like that have never come true. Surprise, surprise, right? He says here, he's talking more about technological advancement. He says, in so many ways, the new optimists are dead on, you know, saying that, hey, actually, things are getting better. And the goal of their work is ultimately to give us hope. But we can't put our hope in technology, Mr. Wilson. Because if we can't see that progress is possible, he writes, that humanity can, humanity, that humanity can make things better, then why even bother to try and fix the myriad of other problems we face? Humanity cannot make it better. Humanity can't make it better because humanity, fallen sinful humanity, is the problem. And by the way, the technological advancement, that has come with God's help and permission. We cannot take the credit. And humanity will never make things better. Mm -mm. Only God can. The one true God, that is. (laughs) So which is it, he asks? Are things getting better or are things falling apart? Well, here in our Christian world... We know that the more things fall apart, the more we know they're coming together right according to God's plan because as predicted, things would most definitely fall apart. There will be a time of trouble on this earth like mankind has never known or never will again, as the Bible tells us. And we are on the precipice of that right now. It's staring us right in the face, Mr. Wilson. The same Bible that has had every prophecy ever foretold by people thousands of years apart people who never knew each other, right to the letter, fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Prophecies that if you were to stand in the state of Texas and have it knee deep with quarters and have to find a penny in it for you to bend over and find that one penny right where you were standing, that's the percentage or the chance of having these prophecies that have come true, come true. The Bible has never been wrong. It's never been proven wrong. It never will. It's a supernatural book. It's alive. It's the word of God who's alive. And so he's also predicted what's going to happen in the future. And we're seeing it. So perhaps you might want to uh, read the Bible along, Mr. Wilson, with someone who has spiritual discernment, who can read it to you in its proper context. I don't know. He says, embedded in the teachings of the Baha'i faith, there is a key concept that helps me make sense of what exactly is happening in the world right now. How the disparate and conflicting energies of our time are at work in the transformation of human society on a global level, it's relatively simple, but astonishingly revelatory. The concept explains that at any time, there are two parallel powers working on the world at once, the forces of integration and the forces of disintegration. Actually, it's Satan versus God, good versus evil. Guess who's going to win? So later in the chapter, he says something here interesting. From this perspective, we are headed toward global unity, one way or another. Unity of humanity, unity of class, creeds, nations, and cultures. That's the only way forward. It's the only conceivable final result. Um, actually, you know, before Jesus come, there will be a forced uh, quote-unquote. I use the term loosely, unity. Um, he's known as the Antichrist. He will bring peace to the Middle East for a time, which he will break after three and a half years. Um, He says, anti-globalist fear mongers can doomsday all they want, but the eventual movement toward a unified human family, sharing the resources of our fragile planet and taking mutual care of each other is what we need to strive for. As naive and utopian as that may sound in these jaded times, well, he sounds very much like quite the cult leader, really. Yeah, it's 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 kind of scary the, the, the more you, you read this book, you know. He has a really good point here. Here's where I agree with him. He says, on both the left and the right, he's talking some politics now. You'll hear solutions offered for this massive problem of broken politics. If some political condition can be met, then things will get substantially better and turn a corner. Things like, we need another Obama, Reagan, Kennedy. He says, insert the dynamic, charismatic president of your choice. We need our party to win a supermajority in Congress. We need to go back to the good old days of polite political cooperation. All these things, right? And he says here, so true, Rain. But even if we did make several or all of these changes, the system would find another way to eat itself from the inside out. Like so many... Of the previous broken systems we examined, the entire way we elect public officials needs to be completely reimagined. It can't be fixed with Band-Aids. No, politics aren't going to give us what we need. They're not going to restore us. They're not going to bring us peace. <laughs> They're not going to bring us salvation. Uh, no one wants to hear what the answer is. They They reject what the answer is. Because what the world ultimately needs is the gospel. It needs to stop rejecting the gospel. It needs Jesus. And not the Jesus that Rain Wilson believes in either. He says, we need an altogether new foundation, a solid and balanced one. One held up by cooperation, unity, humility, and selfless service. A foundation where the goal is the maximum good for all. Building that foundation is where the real work lies. I know, I know, naive, unrealistic, unobtainable, insert collective eye roll here. How did we get there, idiot, you might be asking at this juncture? Well, that's kind of the point of this book. And besides, it's about time we got to the whole revolution part, isn't it? Yes, it most certainly is. And remember, the reason I paint so bleak a picture is to remind us all of how high the stakes are, what we're up against. And if we're going to have a rebellion, even a spiritual one, don't we need to understand what it is that we're rebelling against? You yourself, Mr. Wilson, are rebelling spiritually against your creator, (laughs) the one who holds in his hands your life and your death, where you spend eternity. Okay, after you've made the choices you've made, he'll decide where you're going to spend eternity, depending on your choice. <laughs> Actually, technically, Rain Wilson will be the one to des- to decide where he spends his eternity. So he says here, I propose that many of the spiritual themes and practices we take for granted may require a deeper examination and redefinition. Words like God, religion, faith, soul, sacred, and pilgrimage. Yeah, he's already redefined God throughout this book. All right, so he ends chapter nine with this. He says, we even got to create a super cool new religion, Soul Boom, trademarked, (laughs) based on those foundational concepts and some other groundbreaking ideas for a grassroots religious movement. Why did we cover all this? Because all these big spiritual ideas that make up the majority of this book are often waylaid by folk's general distaste for religion itself, we've thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater and in doing so have lost access to a treasure trove of wisdom and perspective that might truly aid our maturation. I believe that only by recognizing that we are, in fact, spiritual beings, having a collective human experience... Will we be open to the kinds of soul level transformations we're going to need to make the spiritual revolution that this book promises, a revolution that is urgent and necessary in the healing of our beautiful but broken blue marble. And remember, the ultimate aim of this endeavor is my grand attempt to advance a conversation about the importance of the divine dimension of existence and how it can influence our lives and our futures collectively and individually. So there you have it. The pot has been stirred, discussions had, questions raised, perspectives shifted, countless opinions blathered on about by the author, topics both profound and mundane have been sifted through, and to continue the cooking metaphor, hopefully enough spiritual ingredients have been added to the Soul Boom stew for us to open our hearts, minds, and taste buds to what is next, because it's time for a spiritual revolution. So, the author of this book wants a spiritual revolution. He wants one that doesn't include the one true living God. The God of this religion will be whatever God people have made up in their minds um, God to be one that is love and compassion, on their terms of love and compassion, and one that will not hold people accountable for sin. um yeah mr wilson has completely ignored our great instructor god god's instruction as in his word he doesn't want to hear what god says he wants to tell god actually what he thinks he's confused you know the bible tells us that we're wayward and foolish people and when paul the apostle when he wrote to timothy He warned him that among his congregations, there there would always be those led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy three, six and seven. That is Rain Wilson. So educated in so many ways, but not where he needs to be educated. He's always learning, but he's never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Because it's only possible through the Holy Spirit for us to not drift from one idea to another, to another, to another. And that's, that's what he does. All right. So next episode, I'm going to do chapter 10 and then finish up with my concluding comments. Chapter 10 is titled, The Seven Pillars of a Spiritual Revolution. (laughs) And you know, he starts out with a quote from Albert Einstein. We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. And that's, didn't I say way back in the beginning of this book, that's exactly, I just noticed this quote here as I was looking at it. That's exactly what he has been doing. I, I've said this. He tries to <laughs> fix the problem by reinserting what, what got us to this problem, you know, the, the problem is part of the the answer, the solution. No. He wants to solve chaos with chaos. It doesn't work that way. And he's so, sadly, he's, he's so blind to it. So yes, next week we will conclude with Chapter 10 of Soul Boom Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. You know, I'm so excited. I just want to give you a little teaser. Coming up in March, I am going to have a very special guest here on One Little Candle. Her name is Laura Perry, and she is the author of, oh my goodness, one of my favorite books, Transgender to Transformed. We have been kind of talking a little bit back and forth for a while now, but her book did a lot for me um, in putting a face, a a soul, a human behind the word transgender, I guess you, you could say. And so her book, Transgender to Transform, chronicles the story of Laura. She's a former transgender, and she believed the lies that the world has told us. She felt she was trapped in the wrong body, and so she transitioned to the opposite sex. She had irreversible surgery. She had hormone injections. She changed her legal name. But, well, as you can imagine, things didn't turn out the way she had hoped. This book is raw. It's honest. Um what a what a book and I I I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy for her to share this but I'm so grateful that she did and I think I just I don't think this book is just for those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. I believe I believe everybody needs to read this. So yes, we're going to talk about her book and talk with her for a little while. So I'm excited that that is coming up in march and i'm i'm just so excited about it so keep an ear out or an eye out for that all right my friends um been a long episode here hopefully when i go back through and edit it it will be much shorter right now i've got an hour and 41 minutes so going to edit going to cut back what i can probably going to be a long episode because i know people have a hard time with attention spans i mean granted you can Always just take a break and listen to it in stages as you wish to. So, okay, thank you so much for joining me. And for those of you that have followed through with this, I really appreciate it. Thank you so very, very much. Please come back next time for chapter 10, where we will conclude (laughs) this book. Song for the Day. I'm gonna go with the song. I think I might have gone with it the last episode, but it still applies. Um Ancient Words by Michael W. Smith. The ancient words that are still just as relevant today as they were when they were first written. So check that out on YouTube if you'd like. I will include the link to the song as always in the podcast show notes. But anyway Stay close to God, please. Okay, in being that light in the darkness, that one little candle, please, please, please keep drawing closer and closer and closer to God. Cut those things out of your life that are distracting you from the most important thing of all, and that is your walk with God. Ask God to show you what needs to be perhaps cut out or cut it out himself. I know it's painful, but, but you know, it's it's necessary. So stay close because lies, such as the ones found in this book, soul boom, they're really hurting a lot of people. We are light bearers. We are truth bearers. And we have a responsibility while here on this earth. Pray for Israel, of course. Pray for all the leaders around the world. Um, so many wars, so many things are just are happening. 2024, I think, is going to be a really, really, really bumpy year, to say the least. It may seem hopeless for many, but remember, we have our living hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's sovereign over all. The more things fall apart, the more they're coming together. And we are here to see it, to live it. All right, my brothers and sisters in Christ, until next time, you take care and God bless.